Well, I'm sure uh, you have spent the week uh, reading the news and listening to the latest on the coronavirus or COVID-19, and you're aware of that. And if you're a regular attender here and part of the Grace Point family, I hope you received a text and an email or by snail mail if you don't have that technology this week. If you did not receive any updates, I would encourage you to write your name, your phone number, however you would like to receive information or your cell phone number so we can send you a text if you would like any updates. This is an evolving situation, and uh, as you received that letter uh, this week, about Wednesday, we know it's even changed since then. And uh, for the latest updates on what is going on, uh, I would encourage you to look up the Grant County Health District's uh, website. They have an update there and some good information for us. But again, just to remind you that we will continue to meet until it becomes apparent that we're not supposed to. I'm depending upon our healthcare professionals as well as our school systems and other churches to kind of get an idea of what we're to do. And so with that, I just want to remind you of Isaiah 41.10, which we headed that letter up. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And just a reminder that we are a people of faith. We are not a people of fear. And I also need to remind maybe some of you that we are a people of faith, not a people of cynicism, because you can go to the other extreme and not think this is a very big deal. Uh, But uh, so whatever your personal uh, opinions are of the current situation, that's fine. We all have them. But yet uh, the elders and the deacons don't have the luxury of avoiding this or denying it or whatever. Uh, We want to be prepared because even if it turns out not to affect us as a church family, I'd still be rather overprepared than not. And so there are, uh, you know, the basic precautions, you all have read about them, about keeping the wash your hands, use hand sanitizer. There's hand sanitizer out in the lobby for your use. Uh, to, if you're sick, stay home, obviously. Uh, if uh, you, to resist or to uh, not do a lot of physical contact, no handshaking and, you know, do elbow bumps if you, if you need to do that. Uh, but again, the reminder is, is that the best way to care for one another, remember the Apostle Paul has like 50 one another's in the New Testament. And one of the great one another's is to love one another. And at this time, the great way to just show our love for one another is not to share our germs. Okay. And so that's what we're doing. So, uh, you know, if children have runny noses and colds and all of that, uh, we're not saying it's, it's COVID-19, uh, but not to share our germs and to protect one another. And uh, I don't like the term social distancing, uh, but that is one that I found on uh, one of the recommendations from the CDC as well as the Grant County Health Department and other, other places, obviously. Uh, so we practice that, you know, six feet. No, that's not. <laughs> uh, but it seems antithetical to what it means to be a church, to be uh, a believers in Jesus Christ. And yet there's this aspect, we want everybody to be safe. We want everybody uh, as best as possible. One of the things about uh, on, on the health department list is they talk about uh, people who are at higher risk. And of course, those are people 60 or older. Thankfully, I won't reach that for another five years, right? <laughs> ha. So anyway, 
uh, are people with underlying health conditions, including heart disease, respiratory illness, diabetes, people with weakened immune systems, people who are pregnant, you know, compromised immune systems, and so uh, you need to be aware of that. And by the way, if you fall into those categories and if you're a little concerned about meeting with groups like this, feel free to stay home. But let us know. Give us a phone call so we know where you're at that we can minister to you, like if you need a meal brought in or something. Because, uh, you know, I just, I just don't want you to disappear off, off of our radar, essentially. And so let m- myself know or one of the elders or the deacons uh, and just uh, give us a call. Let us know what your decision is because we don't know how this is going to progress through the next week. Uh, and we will keep you abreast of that as, as best as possible. So just be, be aware of that. Uh, Psalm 46 uh, is a great psalm. talks about God being our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. And then twice in that psalm, at least two times, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And so I leave you with that as we continue on to worship the Lord Jesus Christ uh, about that. And so... And if you have uh, any, if you are living in fear, make sure you talk to somebody. You can talk to me or anybody, other elders, and we'll pray with you and encourage you. But remember, our faith is not in science or in a government or in any of that. Ultimately, our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't mean we do stupid things, though. Remember that. It's, remember, God has given us a brain and the ability to discern what's going on around us, and so... We are thankful you're here. In fact, I, I'm just really blessed that you're here. Not only did we lose an hour of sleep, but we have this health problem going around us, and yet you're here. And that's, that's a great testament. And by the way, I know that Grace Point Church is very resilient. Some of you weren't here a number of years ago when the downstairs flooded. In fact, it flooded on a Sunday morning as we were coming to worship, and we had to quickly go to the high school where we spent the next 12 Sundays together down at the high school. Many of you remember that time, and I thought about, uh, you know, sometimes we think change is very difficult, and yet, uh, obviously, we've been through it before, maybe not as serious as what we're looking at now, but still, uh, we are a resilient bunch, and we praise God for that, and I'm, I'm personally thankful for each one of you in that. Well, this morning, uh, we are actually starting a series out of the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the letter to the Colossians uh, back in the New Testament, uh, we've left the Psalms behind. I hopefully not left them from our heart or our minds, but uh, we are going into a new series out of the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, whether you recognize it or not, it is really an Easter book. It is a book about Easter and uh, may not have all the details that the Gospels give us about uh, the Easter season or the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it truly is a book about Easter and about the great joy we can have in that. One uh, person, this is not original with me, but I read this quote, and it is always many, many years ago, and it has always stuck with me. This person wrote, Whatever you think about Christ is the most important thing about you. Whatever you think about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. Now, oftentimes we think the most important thing about us is uh, our families, our skills, our talents, our job, our education, our abilities, all of that. But yet, 
I firmly believe that whatever you think about Jesus Christ, that is the most important thing about you and about each one of us individually. You know, the book of 1 John, I'd love to go there and just spend a lot of time there, but the book of 1 John is written to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the theme of that book is fellowship. It's about believers being in fellowship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've said it many times before, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are secure in your salvation. Your DNA, if it will, your spiritual DNA is set. Just like each one of you has a set of parents and your DNA, your relationship is set. That will not change. Uh, But we can be out of fellowship with those who share our DNA, right? And so John in the book of 1 John is concerned about uh, our fellowship. And he uses the term that's it's translated, it's, it's the Greek word meno, and it is translated abiding. And it has this idea of where you rest, where you dwell, where you abide in life. And I was thinking about that uh, in respect to introducing the book of Colossians. But I was remembering that uh, I don't remember good. <laughs> if that makes any sense. I think all of us need to be reminded of what we have known in the past from time and time again, because we do not remember. We don't remember everything we heard in school or in church, and it doesn't automatically stick. Although there are 60 people in the world, that last count anyway, that have a condition that is called hyperthymesia, hyperthymesia. And what that condition is, is they can remember everything in their life in the past. Amazing, isn't it? You can read out a date and they will remember where they were, who they were with, what they were doing on that date. They will remember exactly everything. Some people think that would be a blessing, but it really is, according to these folks that have that condition, it is a curse. Because who wants to remember exactly everything that has happened in your life? But we need reminded, most of us, a majority of us, unless you have hyperthymesia, and if you do, I want to meet you, okay, Uh, and talk about your life. Uh, But uh, not with me. I don't have that problem. And so I usually have to hear something over and over and over again before I start to even absorb it, and I have to be diligent at learning it, or I'm easily, uh, I, I easily forget what I'm trying to know. And that goes for what we learn out of God's word, out of the Bible. John, in that little letter of 1 John, was, was aware of that challenge. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, he says this, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And in this passage, uh, there are two abidings, two places where we abide in. And first of all, there's the abiding of Christian teaching in you. If you engage with the truth, if you engage with being taught and engage reading the word of God, John writes, what you have heard from the beginning abides in you. What his readers, when they heard the doctrine and the teaching about Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about here, False teachers were denying that and try to upset the readers, those Christians that John was writing to with their false teaching. Which kind of teaching was going to stick? The truth or the lies or the falsehoods? And John was concerned about that. There's no guarantee the truth would remain in them, but John hoped that it would. That's why he says the little word if there. It's a conditional clause. 
if you abide in the truth. And then the second abiding is with the believer, with the Son and the Father there. If the teaching about Christ abides in us, then something happens. You will also abide in the Son and in the Father, the second part of verse 24 there. The second abiding is also conditional depending upon the first. That is, you will have fellowship with the Son and the Father. That's the theme of uh, 1 John. You will know them more intimately, and that makes sense. Because now you can claim to know you can claim to know the Son and the Father intimately. You know them intimately if you abide in their teaching. You need to be a student of good teaching. And we are in this country, in this age, we are bombarded with all sorts of viewpoints about the Bible, about Christianity. We are bombarded if you avail yourself to the social media platforms and online preaching and all of that stuff. But again, what, do you, what you think about Christ is the most important thing about you, what you place your hope in. So we come back to the letter of Colossians, and we want to abide in the truth. And the book of Colossians is primarily about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul is writing it to counteract false teaching. It's called, in theological circles, the Colossian heresy. There was false teachers who were coming into this little city of Colossae. By this time, it was about 11,000 people. And there was a church planted there by Paul's uh, 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 co-worker, Epaphras. Paul had not been to Colossae. He did not plant this church. And yet he was told by Epaphras that there was a false teaching coming in, and it was affecting the church, affecting what people believed about Jesus Christ. It was denying the deity of Christ and denying the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is all in all. And that's with us today. This is not a new heresy, by the way. This is all around us. This is all around us. In fact, I've just started reading a a book uh, called Post-Christian, and it's an analysis of our society, our culture around the world today. And you may have heard the terms that there were pre-modern times, there was the modern era, there is the post-modern era, and uh, now it's the constructionist era. And these eras have beginning points and ending points. We won't go into all of that, but maybe to help you understand where people are at today, in many, many ways, is the fact that they believe that they can construct their own reality. That's the philosophical movement and societal movement and cultural movement around us, and it's all about power. That's why you organize around people who construct the same reality, whether it is, uh, and and this power, it's basically wanting to destroy the opponents. It's no longer dialogue and civil discourse. It is destruction and power, and we see that all around us. We see it in the morals of our country. We see it in the politics of our country. We see it in uh, the morality, the sexuality of our country. It's a construct that people are saying, I have nothing outside here. I'm making my own social construct of who I am. And it's whatever I want it to be, and nobody should argue with it. That's why it seems so schizophrenic. And so it is all around us, and it is destroying the people's confidence in the word of God and in a God at all, for sure. 
And so what we think about Christ is the most important thing about us. As we begin this series, we will go back and do more introductory material, but basically Paul was writing from being imprisoned in Rome, his first imprisonment about 60 or 60, between 60 and 62. And he wrote four letters, and they're called the prison epistles. There's this one, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. And they're called the prison epistles. And they wrote, uh, Paul wrote them close together in time. And uh, remember, Ephesians is about the church. The book of Ephesians is about the church, the body of Christ. And it's very, he teaches us. There's many similarities between Ephesians and Colossians, if you're familiar with both those. Colossians is more argumentative and polemical. Uh, The Apostle Paul is really making the point that he is talking about uh, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the one who is the head of the church. Ephesians is calm and more ironic, and Paul is going head first here in the book of Colossians. Ephesians is a book of discussion, and Colossians is, uh, or uh, Ephesians is a book of reflection, and Colossians is a book of discussion. And he wrote those about the same time. So we come to Ephesians or Colossians chapter 1. If you take your copy of Scripture, let me read through the passage we will attempt to cover today. And uh, there's much here, and we may not get through it all the way. But Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, if you're able to stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's Word, would you please do so? Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the world of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us today, guide our thoughts, and may we be attentive and engaged in the truth that you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Keep in mind, the Apostle Paul is uh, under house arrest in Rome. This is probably his first Roman imprisonment. There's some debate among theologians and scholars if Paul uh, was imprisoned two times or just one time. I have taken the position that he was imprisoned early on in Nero's reign, and then he was released for a short period of time, and then he was re, re uh, arrested and finally martyred uh, for his faith uh, be at about 64, A.D. 64. But this is about A.D. 60, and so the Apostle Paul is imprisoned as he writes to this. And Epaphras, he was able to receive visitors, and Epaphras had come. Epaphras was probably saved in his Ephesian church planning ministry when he was at Ephesus. Remember, he was there three years, and he opened a, a, a class. They met day and, and night all the time. And Paul would teach theology, teach these young converts in Ephesus. But Epaphras was from Colossae. And Colossae is in the Lycus River Valley uh, with three other, two other towns and about 100 miles uh, east of Ephesians or Ephesus and uh, in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. 
Uh, so you can look on your Bible maps and find out where Colossae is. But uh, he, this is a book about hope. And, of course, the only reason we have objective hope is because of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so we're going to look at four things about the identity of hope, or the identity of hope, the source of hope, the fruit of hope, and the proof of your hope. And so who is it? Who is the identity of those who have hope? And we see in verse 1 that Paul introduces himself. He's imprisoned, but he tells them he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the technical term that he has been appointed by Jesus himself. Uh, we see back in the book of Acts that Paul was appointed as an apostle and uh, by the will of God. And uh, Timothy, our brother, Timothy was his co-worker. And so he's sending this greeting. When we write a letter, we sign it at the end of the letter. But in these days, in this culture, uh, they would let you know right up front who is speaking, who is sending this letter. And he's an apostle. He's one appointed. He's a messenger. He's a sent one uh, to proclaim the truth of God and to teach others. And it's by the will of God. Uh, today, there are churches and uh, groups that claim to have apostles and prophets. It's a big movement uh, called uh, the New Apostolic Reformation is one term for it. But they believe they have apostles and prophets, and yet they are self-designated. They are not told by Jesus Christ that they're an apostle and a prophet. And so Paul makes it very clear that he didn't just decide he was an apostle. It is by the will of God and then he's with Timothy, his brother. So basically, when Jesus Christ fills our horizon, we have hope. And this is the Apostle Paul imprisoned, facing trial, wanting to meet with Nero and not able to do so. And he knows that he's only there because of Jesus Christ, and that's his will. So his horizon is full of Jesus Christ. His life is full of it. In our position in Christ, we have hope. To the saints, look at verse 2. He calls them saints, faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Saints, do you consider yourself a saint? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are called a saint. Now, oftentimes we think of a saint uh, as being someone who's really grim, someone who's really grim. And uh, you may have heard about the little girl, but... Uh, she saw a mule for the first time. She went to a farm, and there was a mule there. And she looked into its face, and she said, this mule must be a Christian. And her dad said, why is that? He said, because he looked, my grandpa's a Christian, and it looks just like my grandpa. <laughs> you know, holy does not mean grim. Holy means set apart. He calls them holy brothers. And, of course, the brethren here is male and female. That word is used both of both genders. It's not gender-specific. Uh, it's not grim. You know, sometimes we think of holy people as sacrimonious and large, just large killjoys. And, uh, but the word means separated unto God in our modern termina terminology, claimed by God, if you will. Christians are holy because they belong to God. Remember Jesus Christ, when he died for our sins... And he rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. Paul tells us in Romans that his righteousness was credited to our account. Not our righteousness, because none are righteous, none are holy in and of ourselves. But because of Jesus Christ, who is absolutely perfect, his righteousness is given to us and accredited to our accounts is what it means. And so God sees us as holy because he sees us in Christ and so we use that term holy in different ways. There's a hymn entitled, Bless His Holy Name. 
Why is God's name holy? Because it is God's name and he is absolutely holy. Or we call this book the Holy Bible. Why is we call it that? Because it is God's book. It is God's revelation to us. We call Israel the Holy Land. It's because it peculiarly belongs to God more than any other spot on the earth because his chosen people are to dwell there. And his, his promise still yet to be future uh, fulfilled is that they will occupy the whole land promised to them back in the Old Testament. Being holy has nothing to do with how you act, but more with who you are, who you are in Christ. It's a positional truth. You belong to God by faith. And so these Colossians said, we believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And his righteousness was credited to their account, and they are called holy. He also called them faithful brethren. He's not talking about two classes of people, saints and faithful brethren. It's saints who are faithful. They are faithful. And this gives us a hint, the first hint about the struggles that are going on in Colossae at this time. There were strange doctrinal ideas floating about at this time called the Colossian heresy, and it was dragging people away from their faith. But he is encouraging them to remain faithful, consistent, dependable, genuine believers because of constant supply of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And he was going to use this letter in their lives to protect them. And then in the end of verse 2, he tells them grace and peace, a common greeting of that time, but it takes on particular interest when we recognize is that we will never experience the peace of God until we experience the grace of God. Grace is his unmerited favor embodied in Jesus Christ, taking your place and my place on the cross of Calvary, dying for you and dying for me, and then being buried and raising again on the third day, gaining the victory over sin and death and promising us that we have eternity in heaven ahead of us, that we can have it right now. And so grace and peace, God's grace is a provision for the peace in the Christian life, the enjoyment of his provision, orientation to the grace of God. And when we are oriented to the grace of God, that unmerited favor, then we will experience the peace of God through that grace. And so we go on to the fact that the identity, we are identified of those who have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are, this is the greeting, the introduction to this letter. And the verses 3 through 8 is really, in the Greek language, one long sentence. Paul was good at, at doing one big long sentence. You know, it's like he got started and he didn't want to put in any punctuation. If you look at Greek manuscripts, they didn't have punctuation anyway. And so he made this one long sentence. And if you take a language course, if you've ever diagrammed sentences, here's a challenge for you in verses 3 through 8 to diagram this sentence. But yet it is full, packed full of thanksgiving. This is a prayer of thanksgiving the Apostle Paul opens up with. And he gives us the source of our hope. If we are a people who are identified as having hope, here is the source of our hope. In verse 3, there is the prayer. He's thankful. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's always a challenge for me when I think about this congregation, about the people we impact and the people that we have circles of influence. Each one of you has a context in which you live and which you work and which you, in families and friends and all of that, you all have, if we were to count up the number of people that you, you have an impact in, in their life, I can't even imagine. You know, you think about maybe your 10 or 15 closest friends and, and, and we just multiply that by what, 100 people here today? 
That's a lot of people to pray for, and you can pray for them and pray for other believers. Pray for them always. doesn't mean that Paul never did anything else, but he always had this on his mind that we need to pray for one another. And so we look to others and pray for them in thankfulness. And then we look at the parts of the plant of hope. Now this, we go to a, a, a metaphor, an agrarian metaphor perhaps. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because, there, here's the reason, because of the hope laid up for you in the heavenlies, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth, the gospel. So look at the parts of the plant. Faith, uh, hope is the root. Think about hope being the root of a plant, this healthy plant. Faith is the plant itself, and love is the fruit, is the produce of this plant. And so he uses this very familiar triptych or triad, faith, hope, and love. And this is the picture here that this faith and love spring from the hope that is reserved for us. Faith is the soul looking upward to God. It's, it's the plan itself. Love looks outwards to others. It is the fruit, the evidence that we are a people of faith. And hope looks forward to the future. That's the roots of this. You know, the Greek word that's translated hope here has no relationship to our English, I hope it rains today, or I hope that uh, I win the lottery. It has no relationship to that kind of stuff uh, because those kinds of desires have no assurance of fulfillment in fact. Uh, There is no guarantee that it will rain today. I mean, sure, we can look at the weather and maybe uh, recognize it will if there's clouds on the horizon. But the New Testament word for hope is something that is certain because it does not depend on you and does not depend on me. It is dependent upon the words and works of Jesus Christ. We place our hope in the firm foundation of Christ. Faith rests on the past work of Christ. Love works in the present and hope anticipates the future. Did you catch that? Faith rests on the past work of Christ. We look back, we can read the Easter story, we can read the Bible, we can understand it because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and we look back and say, Jesus Christ is faithful. We talk about God's character. He is righteous and holy. He will not fail. He will carry out everything he's going to do. He will never leave us or forsake us. All the myriads and myriads of promises in Scripture. Faith rests on the past work of Christ. Love works in the present. It is the fruit. It is saying, okay, I believe this, therefore I live differently. God is making me live differently. And hope anticipates the future. You know, faith and love will continue into eternity. Hope will be fulfilled when we see Jesus Christ face to face. And so we rest in that. Hope is the foundation. It gives rise to the question, what produces hope? We all desperately need hope. Without hope, we don't have any desire to live. We've all had hopeless moments and felt like saying, what is going on? I don't have any hope. There's no, no hope for today or tomorrow. What produces fo- hope? Here's Paul's answer in the beginning of verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. In verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of what you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. By the word, by the way, the, the word heaven there is not talking about a place. It's talking about, it's a plural word, even though it's not, not reflected in our English translation as a plurality. Other places it's translated 
heavenlies or the heavens. It's like the whole sphere of spirituality around us right now, and it is reserved for us. We have hope because of the heavenlies is at work in this. It is a reference to not to heaven after death, but to the invisible spiritual kingdom that surrounds us on all sides right now. I remember uh, there was a book written many, many years ago by Francis Schaeffer, one of his first books, which gave us the contrast between the physical world and the spiritual world. And his conclusion was is that the physical world is limited. Obviously, we have a lifespan, and, and it's, it's limited, and we have great blessings in that. We live in the physical, and it's very real to us. And yet he made the argument that the spiritual world is far more relative and far more relevant and far more important than what we see in our physical lives. And the aspect of that, the Bible supports it, I believe. And so he produces hope for us. It's stored up for us. It never comes to an end in far as we need hope today and in this life. The gospel has come upon you. The source of our hope is the gospel. Look again at verse 5. You heard in the word of the truth the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is really a rough translation or a very brief translation is good news. It's the good news. And here he's talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the gospels in the, in the Bible, the four books of the gospels, but he's talking about the gospel. Basically, John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the process, the source of our hope. And it is in the gospel. We are awakened by the gospel. Hope is awakened and there's good news. And it addresses people who desperately need to know the good news. And all of us desperately needed that. If you've been a believer for 50 years or two years, it doesn't matter. We are all in a desperate need. In fact, one man said we're a bunch of losers until Jesus comes along. And that is so true. The trajectory of my life dramatically changed at age 28. It's because Jesus Christ opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel and gave me hope. Before that, I had no hope. There's no hope in atheism and agnosticism and any other isms in the world like that. And so the hope is available to us. It comes from the gospel, the word of truth. Dorothy Sayers, who was a great Christian writer, said, The test of any religion is not whether it pleases us or is comfortable, but whether it is true. Does it accord with reality? Does it do what it says it will do? That is the test. And Christianity has never failed that test. It says what it's going to do and it accomplishes it. It changes our lives. And so the source of our hope is the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are identified as ones who have hope, a saint and a faithful one. And verse 6, the fruit of our hope, the fruit of our hope. Look at verse 6 again, which has come to you, speaking of the gospel, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing <clears throat> in you since you, the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel continually and constantly bears fruit in changed lives. Now, we've talked about our own personal testimonies of how we know that Jesus Christ died for us, how we know we're believing in him and have a future and a hope that we are trusting him for our eternity future. That when we die, this life is not all there is. But we have a future and a hope and a wonder ahead of us here. 
And so the gospel constantly bears the fruit of changed lives. If we truly believe that, it will change us. It will change our perspective. Being a good person doesn't make us Christians, but being a Christian can, if we're receptive of what God is doing, change our lives in a good way. And the gospel continues to change lives, continues to change lives. I was thinking about this as I read this passage today in uh, Paul writing this about A.D. 60, 62, right in there. And in another 60 years, by A.D. 125, the whole known world had been exposed to Christianity and Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have electronic instruments. They didn't have television. They didn't have... Books were not widely available. They had scrolls, but not everybody could afford a scroll. You know what happened? It was a people movement. A people movement. Because Paul didn't go to every person in the then known empire of Rome and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He couldn't have done that. But people believed in Christ for Savior, and then they told others, and then they told others, and then they told others. My friend, Ron Rissi, who was a missionary, still is a missionary in Indonesia in the Samangdong tribe on the island of Borneo in West Kalimantan. Back in the 70s, there were no Christians there. An animistic tribe believed there were spirits in the rocks and the trees and the rivers and lived in deep, deep fear. In fact, at night, you'd go by their, their, their hut and they would always have a light, an oil lamp or a candle glowing in the front door. That was to keep the evil spirits away. And when the missionaries got there, Ron uh, Arisi, and then his partner, by the way, who is Barb Hewitt's brother. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Her brother served with Ron in Samangdong in Indonesia for many years. When they got there and started sharing the gospel and people got saved, guess what happened? Ron and, and uh, Barb's brother, Jim. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, Greg, you better know that one. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, when they got there, they didn't go around and talk to 25,000 people. They shared the gospel with those they had contact with, and they planted churches, and churches started to grow, and the people went out. And you know what they did? When they were harvesting rice, they would share the gospel with the person next to them harvesting rice. And it was a people movement. It was, rep it was a replica of what happened in the book of Acts. It is what happened in the first century when people shared the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, you may think you don't know anything about the Bible and you don't know much about theology and you just, you know, it's, it, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know how Jesus Christ rescued you and you can tell others and you can tell them the basics. John 3.16, believe in Jesus for everlasting life. Remember the whole issue of conditions and consequences. The consequence of that verse is everlasting life. The condition is believe in Jesus for everlasting life. The gospel is simple. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. And you don't need to complicate it. You don't need to have the answers to everybody's question. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. And that's what happened in this passage. And that's what he's talking about. People got saved because others were sharing their faith with them. And they had hope. The source of hope was the gospel. And the fruit was changed lives. God is continually changing our lives. And finally, in verses 7 through 8, after the fruit of the hope is the proof of your hope in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. 
They learned the gospel from this man who was probably, he wasn't an apostle. He was studied under Paul. He went with Paul different places, but he was not an apostle. And yet he came back to his hometown, Colossae, and he shared the gospel and planted this church. And now uh, Paul is just saying he was representative of the gospel here. He's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. That word servant there really is a bond servant or a bond slave is a better translation. I was reading this week and studying that word. And back in the early part of our country's history, when people would do Bible translation, they didn't like the word, the English word slave, because it reflected upon the slavery that was going on in our country at that time. So they massaged the word and made it servant, which sounded so much better. And yet, The literal translation is a bond slave here to Jesus Christ. We believe in him. We are his. We are totally owned by him, but he is the most benevolent slaveholder in the world in all of creation, all of time. He died for us. He lives for us. He intercedes for us. He advocates for us. We are beloved fellow bond slaves. And Epaphras is an example of that. And then verse 8, the Holy Spirit enables us to love those we would not otherwise love. Look at verse 8. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. The word love there is the word agape. Maybe you watched the Super Bowl and you saw that ad. I don't remember who had the ad, but they had the four different Greek words for love. And, of course, the ultimate one is agape. Agape is the, the, the Greek word for the love that's expressed by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It's unconditional love. It doesn't require something in return. You know, we live in a, in a culture, in a society where we say we love something because it gives us something in return. And Jesus Christ expressed this, and he's telling us there that these Colossian believers have that unconditional love in the spirit. You know, we live in an age when the English word love pretty much has no meaning. We can say, I love pizza or I love the Statue of Liberty, or I love a sunny day, or I love my wife. I mean, wait a minute, you know, my wife, pizza, what, you know? And uh, so it really doesn't have a lot of meaning to that when we say it. In fact, you know, we talk about falling in love. You know, that's really an impossibility. I don't know if you've recognized that. You fall into infatuation with somebody, but love is a decision. It is more accurate to say you fall into infatuation and as your relationship grows, uh, you know, love is a decision. And here in this context, the decision is fueled by the Holy Spirit of God because each one of us has unlovable people in our lives, don't we? There are people we'd rather not be around. You know, it's just, it might be family, it might be coworkers, it might be people at church, it might be Anybody in your context, think about the person that you just, ah, you know. The Holy Spirit can feel your heart to love that person in an unconditional way, not expecting anything in return. One of my mentors, I was early on in ministry kind of whining about somebody in the church I was in. This is the church I was in in the upper Midwest. And... uh, Uh, I don't know what the situation was, but one of my mentors said, Gary, he had a southern accent. He said, Gary, just love him in Jesus. Just love him in Jesus. You don't have to like him. 
but you do have to love them in Jesus. <laughs> and uh, that stuck with me, because only God can give us that ability. Love is a decision, and here in the book of Colossians. So we begin this journey, and it's a book of hope. It's a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's a book about abiding in Christ, as First John has introduced us to it, and about fellowship with one another in that. And so we come to the end of this day here today in this time, and we recognize that God is doing a work in each one of our hearts. Anytime you're exposed to the Word of God, there should be some kind of a response. You know, otherwise it's like uh, said, we look in a mirror and forget what we look like and walk away. Uh, you know, when we look at the Word of God, when we study the Word of God together, it should give us some kind of response. And I don't know what that response is in your life. I don't know what it is and what it will look like through this day or the days that God gives us. But I would challenge you to think about this opening passage in the letter of Colossians and say, okay, God, now what? What do you want me to do with this? You know, And it may be different things. You may need to love somebody you've never loved before in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may need to believe in the gospel. Maybe you've never done that, that you've never believed in Jesus for everlasting life. You've always had some kind of string attached to that or think it has strings attached. And to believe in Jesus for everlasting life, maybe that's your response today. And maybe it's the fact that you beat yourself up all the time emotionally. Remember, you're a saint, and that you strive to be a faithful one. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you for bringing us together in this time, <coughs> in this moment, in uh, space and time and history never to be repeated again exactly like this. I thank you for your people. Thank you for our guests who are with us today. Thank you that you are so faithful. And thank you, Lord, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And may we uh, really grasp the fact that because of Jesus, we are called saints. We are set apart ones. We belong to you. And Lord, I thank you for those who are here who maybe have never heard the message of the gospel and they're contemplating it at this moment. <clears throat> Pray for them that they would believe in Jesus for everlasting life and be assured of that and have great joy in the rest of the day and in all of their life and into eternity. And we thank you that you're with us, that you love us, and we pray as we go from this place that we'd be a people, uh, not of fear and not of skepticism or cynicism, but we'd be a people of faith. And we thank you that you go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we...